This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Clever by Nature, a company using innovative design to take carbon out of the carbon cycle. Here's how it works. Clever by Nature works with outdoor companies and gear makers, identifying ways to make their manufacturing process more sustainable. Maybe figuring out a way to save water or source materials differently or upgrade machinery in the factory. The kind of changes that are good for the planet, but kind of expensive up front. Clever by Nature identifies the changes that manufacturers should make and then partners with a different company or group of buyers, maybe even you, to offer an exclusive limited run of those sustainably produced products to just that group. So let's say that there's a new kind of jacket made with a better fabric that keeps thousands of tons of CO2 out of the atmosphere. Clever by Nature finds buyers for that jacket ahead of time, guaranteeing that if this jacket gets made, it will sell. The manufacturer, safe in the knowledge that they won't lose any money, then makes those upgrades to their production process and produces the jacket. Both groups split the carbon credits, and that manufacturer now has a lower impact production process that they can use going forward. It's lasting change. Clever by nature, is just the catalyst. To find out more and to see if your company or group could be a force for change, go to cleverbynature.com. That's clever x nature, clever by nature. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is Sweat Science, Stories of Human Endurance. Yeah, I I think the big question that underlies the whole pursuit of limits is, when I push to what feels like my limit, is that everything that my body has to give? And there's an idea that's called the central governor these days, uh, thanks to a scientist named Tim Noakes, who proposed this idea in the 1990s. Somehow we're hardwired not to be able to push all the way to the point where we sort of keel over on the savanna while chasing the antelope and die. We have some sort of circuitry that prevents us from pushing all the way to our physical limits. Now, this idea wasn't just invented in, you know, 1996 when Tim Noakes started talking about it. People have speculated about it for, for decades and probably for centuries, but it's only in the last couple of decades that people have started to try and a little more systematically measure this idea of can, can we squeeze every bit out of the lemon or is there some sort of limit that prevents us from getting there? Hey everybody, I'm Peter Frickwright, and this is the start of a new series on the Outside Podcast about human endurance. Over the next few months, we're going to be looking at the absolute maximum, non-negotiable limits of the human body. It's a subject that Outside columnist Alex Hutchinson, who you just heard from, has been reporting on for a decade. And with his help, we're going to be exploring the subject through a series of stories about why people give up, and when the human body gives out. His book is called Endure, The Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. His column in the series is called Sweat Science. We're going to kick things off with a story about a very hard, very hated exercise, the pull-up. Hanging off a bar, arms overhead, pulling yourself up so that the bar is below your chin. All right, this is the Pete pull-up challenge. Ready? Yep. 
It's a movement that the average American can't do more than one or two of before hitting muscle failure. The average reasonably athletic outside podcast host with a pull-up bar in his garage? About five. <laughs> Did I even get to five? No. Is that four? Yeah. <laughs> the pull-up is difficult because the muscles involved just aren't all that strong. The latissimus dorsi, teres major and minor, infraspinatus, they're not designed to move all that much weight. But call it a testament to just how much the human body can respond to training. The world record for pull-ups in 24 hours? It's in the thousands. And last September, we heard about a guy named John Orth in Golden, Colorado, whose pull-up world record had just unofficially been broken. John was going to defend his title with another record attempt, which meant 24 hours of pushing himself right up against the body's limit. So naturally, we asked if producer Robbie Carver could come watch. When John Orth does pull-ups, he does them very, very fast. I mean, listen to him. It sounds like his first set. In fact, those were pull-ups 3,600, 3,601, 602, 603, 604, and 3,605. He does them faster than I can say them. And he's been doing them for six hours straight. How's your body feeling? Perfect. Yeah, about as good as I can be, I guess. Cool. John is 5'10", 147 pounds. He's a luthier a violin maker, and teaches woodworking at Red Rocks Community College. He's compact with a tightly woven upper body and legs so skinny they belong in a geriatric ward, not on a world record athlete. There's not an ounce of wasted body mass on him. If it doesn't help him do a pull-up or keep him alive, he shed it as excess weight. You might call him a little obsessive. How does one come to be a, a, a endurance pull-up athlete? In this case, it was purely by accident. I was a rock climber for many years, and or still am, and I was in a local climbing store, Bentgate, and they were hosting a competition. Whoever did the most pull-ups on these ice tools would win the ice tools. And I thought, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a climber. I'm good at pull-ups, and uh, so I'm going to win them. And and I didn't. And I was so mad at myself that, um, and this is completely honest, that I thought I'm going to train all year and I'm going to win them next year. So he trained figuring that it would be no contest this time. Problem was, he was right. There was literally no contest the next year. And the following year, they didn't do the pull-up competition, and I had trained so hard. So I went to the gym, and I spoke to the director, and I said, how about letting me do this 24-hour event? And he said yes, so I trained for six more months and, and went for it. Which raises the question, how on earth do you prepare your body to do pull-ups for 24 hours straight? Well, it's not so much about strength as stamina. Um, I started working with an assist machine. Uh, most people are familiar with like the hoist assist machine that are in most gyms. And I started doing pull-ups on the assist as I would on a rowing machine. I would just do pull-ups for a half hour straight with half my body weight. Well, of course, I had to start out first with a lot more. And uh, I would just pull and pull and pull until it... I. My comfortable routine now is 12 to 1400 pull-ups a day, and I can easily do that in two hours or less. Most of us know the high school version of how our muscles get stronger. Do hard enough exercise and you start tearing muscle fibers. 
during rest, your body then rebuilds those fibers and adds a few more, just in case. Repeat this exercise enough times, and you see results. And for pure one-and-done strength moves, that understanding is more or less sufficient. But if you want to repeat these moves over and over and over, things get a little more complicated. From a purely muscular point of view, what's the difference between being able to do 100 pull-ups and 1,000? There's a number of structural changes that, that happen over time with chronic exercise. This is Dr. Marcus Aman, who studies fatigue in the central nervous system at the University of Utah. Dr. Aman says that it's not just about the raw strength of the muscle, but how efficiently the body learns to deal with something called metabolites. So if you and I do five pull-ups, we might accumulate a huge amount of, uh, of metabolites simply because we are not used to that type of exercise. We, our, our body hasn't figured out the best way to deliver oxygen and nutrients to exactly the muscles that, that are used there right now. We'll talk more about metabolites later on. But basically, they are the chemical byproducts of muscle contraction, particularly when the muscles are in oxygen deficit. For a number of reasons, too many of them can gum up the works and make the muscles less responsive to signals from the brain, producing what's called peripheral fatigue. Without conditioning, your body simply doesn't know the best way to get muscles the oxygen they need. It's kind of like the first time you try to navigate a new city. Sure, you'll get to the store eventually, but it might take you a few wrong turns to get there. But give it a week, and you'll arrive in no time. So when you ride your bike at 200 watts or 300 watts, you have a certain amount of metabolites in your legs. And then you go back and you train for three months. The metabolites that you will find in your muscle are less. And this is simply because the muscle has become more efficient. Once you have the strength to do one pull-up, doing them for 24 hours is entirely about efficiency. And over the past decade, a handful of athletes have shown just how efficient muscles can get. It's been a slugfest. In 2011, Britain's Stephen Highland recorded 4,020. Two years later, David Goggins, in his third attempt, beaked it up to 4,025. Then an Australian, Kane Eckstein, added 200 more. And in 2014, 54-year-old Mark Jordan pushed it to 4,321. He says focusing on 4321 was what enabled him to get there. But 2015 was the real battle royale. Over the course of the year, four different people set four new records, pushing the number up to 6,800. It felt like the record was reaching its upper limits. Until in May 2016, a high school kid named Andrew Shapiro stepped up and showed everyone, nope, the limits were still a long way off. Andrew Shapiro didn't start out looking for the fame and notoriety of setting a world record. When he started out, like a lot of high school kids, he just wanted to get on TV. I used to be really into that show, American Ninja Warrior. So I figured, like, if I did this to, like, build a resume kind of for myself, they'd let me on the show easier. So that's why I chose pull-ups. Andrew is in college now at the University of New Hampshire. He's on the shorter side, with shaggy hair under a fly-fishing baseball cap, sweatpants, plaid shirt, and a low-energy, kind of Sunday afternoon vibe. He looks like a college kid, not a world-class pull-up artist. What, how, did it, how did the pull-up record first come across uh, your life? Um, 
I, I don't know how I first saw it or how, why I looked it up, but I like I saw it one day and I thought that like that number didn't, I think it was like 5,800 at the time for 24 hours. And I didn't think that was like completely unachievable. To do 5,800 pull-ups in 24 hours, you'd have to do about four pull-ups a minute for a whole day. Which actually, when you put it like that, four pull-ups doesn't sound completely impossible. It's just a matter of putting your head down and building up endurance, doing the training. And Andrew's pretty good at that. I didn't I didn't have a whole lot of friends. I kind of like stuck to myself. So, I mean, it didn't have a huge effect on me when I started spending all my time just working out. When you talk about a pull-up workout, it's just pull-ups? Yes. It's pretty much boring as it sounds, up, down, up, down for two hours, like 20 second breaks in between sets. Back in high school, training days went like this. In the morning, Andrew woke up, did his homework for the day, and went to school. When he got home, he took a nap and then did pull-ups late into the night. 10 pull-ups a minute, five pull-ups every 30 seconds. I would keep my own clock like separate from the timer and every time it hit 21 seconds, I would do a set of five. And then every time it hit 51 seconds, I would do a set of five. Um, why I chose those numbers, I don't know, but. <laughs> the goal was to keep the same pace for as long as possible. When I first started, I could only do five minutes of 10 a minute. And then at the end of seven months of training, I could keep that up for five hours, 30 minutes. Basically, that's five more minutes than the last time, each training day. Or adding about 50 pull-ups every workout. Like, what I did was I just made a big Excel spreadsheet, planned out every workout from day one to day, like, 200-something. And I would see, like, what I'm supposed to be at, and if I was below that, I'd be like, oh, you gotta work harder. And if I was ahead of that, I'd be like, hey, you're doing pretty good, maybe take a little break this time. He kept building up and felt good about his fitness, so on May 14th, 2016, he made an attempt at the record. His dad was a cancer survivor, so he partnered with a Relay for Life event, put up a tent, put a pull-up bar inside, and got started. It, it just was not ideal conditions. I was outside in a tent, like a big, like almost wedding tent type of thing, and they didn't have like power cords out there, so we had to run this really loud generator so I couldn't listen to music or do anything. I just had this really annoying humming going the whole time, which was kind of deafening. So, and then we also, it was blazing hot during the day. It was like upper 80s. And then at night it was, got down to like, probably like upper 50s. So it was pretty chilly. He did pull-ups for 18 hours straight. And the limiting factor turned out to be his hands. Like no matter what type of oven mitts or pads or whatever you want to try to use, like your hands are not meant to be on a bar for the majority of a day. In his basement, his hands would get blistered, start bleeding and then get infected. He kept training, however, so they never really healed. He figured out a better system for the actual record attempt, but still, by the end, they were completely trashed. He quit six hours early, and the tissue under his fingernails swelled up and turned purple and black. My prom date junior year thought I painted my nails to the match your dress. I didn't, but heard a lot of stuff about that. <laughs> In total, without even using all 24 hours, he had done 7,306 pull-ups. It was a new record, but it wouldn't even last a month. Twenty-eight days later, on June 11th, 2016, in Golden, Colorado, John North made his own attempt and also had problems with his hands. He was 16 hours into his record attempt when the pain became unbearable. I had to quit because I had lost most of the skin on my hands and it was 
just awful, and, and the thought of grabbing the bar one more time was was miserable. Uh, my hands took weeks to heal, uh, months to get back to normal. And not just his hands. His whole body had ripped itself apart from the effort. Uh, I couldn't even lift my body off the ground for over a month. But in those 16 hours, John had done 7,600 pull-ups. And he says that if his hands had not been in such terrible shape, he knows he could have gone further. Much further. And that's eaten at him ever since. From the minute I stopped last time, I regretted it. I knew I had more in me. I knew I trained harder than I, than I worked. Um, that regret has sat with me ever since. So two attempts, two world records, and two athletes who both felt like they had unfinished business with the pull-up. Like, if their hands hadn't given out, they could have done a lot more. And what's kind of remarkable is that these two guys actually didn't have any real rivalry going. They were in different parts of the country, unaware that the other was training on basically the same schedule. They were hitting the same numbers, and after that first attempt, they both set their sights on a number that would have been pretty much unthinkable just two years earlier. 10,000 pull-ups. That would be 25% more than anyone had ever done. Was that even possible? More after this break. This episode about pushing the limits of human performance is brought to you by Clever by Nature, pushing the limits of natural materials. Before the show, we heard about how Clever by Nature identifies ways that companies can make their manufacturing processes more sustainable, like taking dead and diseased trees out of the forest in Colorado. So in order to actually do that at some scale, we had to create a, a different market for it, if you will. This is Clever by Nature CEO Valerie Navarro. And you may have heard about the bark beetles that are killing off huge stands of forests up and down the West Coast. What Valerie's doing is instead of letting those trees burn in the yearly wildfires, she's turning those already dead trees into something called biocarbon through a process of heating it up in the complete absence of oxygen. At about 1300 degrees Fahrenheit, it degrades the wood down to a usable carbon. So we can actually take that and create textiles from that. We can create soft plastics and or solid plastics. Uh, we can also put it into rubber. So we can begin to inject that, if you will, into different types of products. These are early days, and they're starting small. So the first product is a phone case from Woodchuck, made from a plastic that's 20% biocarbon. But that ratio is going to go up to 80% biocarbon in January, with more products on the way. And I know phone cases aren't going to save the world, but remember, this isn't about making new stuff, but building the infrastructure for sustainable materials to replace petroleum-based ones. So the goal is for us to actually take those trees, get them out of there to mitigate the wildfire risk, and turn it into a 3D-printed usable product and ship it out. So that vertical integration really begins to manifest itself as a completely different type of manufacturing backbone. Go to cleverbynature.com for more information about how you can help change the way things get made. That's Clever X Nature. Cleverbynature.com. So here we are at the Earthtrex gym in Golden, Colorado. John's about to begin his attempt at 10,000 pull ups in 24 hours. A pair of volunteer judges sit at a table, ready to mark every rep. Another table has a stoner's delight of munchies for John. Bits of bacon, mini Hot Pockets, Nutter Butters, and Doritos, 
Despite the spread, John is meticulous about his diet, even weighing himself every 20 minutes to ensure he's taking in enough fluids. That bacon is not an indulgence. Bacon is everything I need for an ultra-endurance event, so chop it up into very tiny bits, and it's the fat, it's the salt, it's everything I feel like I need uh, for fuel, while at the same time I can just throw up my mouth and swallow it. You know, this is a very singular event where I have to lift everything I consume. But the snacks are all in place. So with little fanfare, John begins. Guinness World Records has a very specific definition of what qualifies as a pull-up. No jumping up to the bar, and no dropping off the bar until your arms are fully extended. During the pull, your arms must break 90 degrees, your chin must clear the bar, and your arms must fully extend again before the next pull. Legs straight, no kipping. And here's a key point. You don't have to stay on the bar the whole time. In fact, John only does five pull-ups at a time, one set every 28 seconds. This seems to be my happy middle ground. Five is a number I don't have to count. It's so normal now that I just do them and let go of the bar. Um, and that interval is a pace that I can maintain for a really long time. There's a couple reasons for this. It's uh, extremely difficult to keep your hands held over your head for so long. Um, even if you had incredible endurance and strength and you, you could pull sets of 10, the amount of time, those extra few seconds that your hands are above your head, the blood is draining out, they start to tighten up very quickly. And tight hands can't grip the bar. This is why John can bust out 900 pull-ups in an hour, five at a time. But the record for most pull-ups without dropping off the bar is a measly 238 by Jan Kares in 2017. Kares stayed on the bar for 34 minutes, taking plenty of rests where he hung from one arm while shaking blood back into the other. Simply put, staying on the bar has rapidly diminishing returns. But there's also the danger of staying off the bar too long. If you take too little of rest, you're not going to give your muscles enough time to recover. But if you take too long of rest, they could get cold essentially, and you won't keep that pace. So I kind of tried to find like a happy medium between the two, where my muscles stay out of like a constant warmness, but also don't get too tired from taking too little rest. This is why both John and Andrew barely take any breaks during their attempts. Like clockwork, every 28 seconds, John steps up to the bar, does five impossibly fast and smooth pull-ups, and then drops back down. He stretches a bit, maybe takes a bite of bacon, chats and laughs and sings a few lines of whatever 80s rock anthem happens to be playing, then jumps back on. And uh, everything feels great, so just... He follows that routine for the first hour. Trying to not sing too much, keep my breath, and... And the second. And uh, settle in for the, the long haul. And the third. It's not until he's done 2,000 pull-ups that he takes his first break. 90 seconds to go pee. And the pull-ups keep ticking by. 2,500. 3,000. 3,500. At six hours in, he shows his first sign of being anything other than a machine. At a low point right now, everything feels a little bit uh, stiff. Back is a little bit tight. Um, but I'm still in a good mood, so I'm just pushing through it. And... Uh, there's always these ups and downs. You kind of hope that every, every other hour or so you'll bounce back for a little bit. So a uh, few, more, few more sets and then hopefully that'll, that'll help shake out the, you know, the stiffness. John hasn't slowed down or broken his pace, but he thinks that he may have started the event a little dehydrated. 
which meant his calculations on fluid intake were a bit low, and his muscles tighter than they should be. A pain in his back has been steadily growing. By midnight, 4,400 pull-ups in, he's visibly in pain, taking slightly longer breaks or doing sets of four instead of five. I'm more tired than I was last time, but that was, uh, that, that was, you know, I want to be tired. I want to finish this thing having left everything out here, and I just, I just hope I'm pacing myself correctly. And then he hits 6,000. He falls to the ground and starts to sob quietly. One of his friends massages his back while he's curled on the floor. She tells me it feels like there are golf balls where his lats should be. <laughs> now it hurts. <laughs> ah. Ah. So now we've gotten to that other part where it starts getting emotional. <laughs> ah, no. So we just passed 6,000. I don't know what time it is. I think it's almost 4 in the morning. So we're about 12 hours in. Uh, uh, so <laughs> I don't know how I feel, actually. <laughs> I, I'm at a, a small low point here, so I'm just trying to crank them out. I ask him, what's hurting? Life. <laughs> No, it's just, the, it's the same part of my back, and, and now I'm just, you know, tired. With 6,000 pull-ups under his belt and 12 hours to go, John was still on pace to hit 10,000. He was only 1,600 pull-ups away from his previous record. But the way John was looking, it was going to be a brutal 12 hours. And let's pause right here to talk for just a second about what's happening in John's body. We already heard about metabolites and how they build up in the tissues, but what's actually happening when a muscle gets tired or stops working? Or maybe let's start with an even more basic version of that question. How do muscles work? <laughs> wow, that's a tough one. Um, let, let me try and answer within the bounds of my knowledge. This is Alex Hutchinson again, and he says basically muscle contractions are complex chemical reactions that result in the shortening of a muscle fiber. But muscle failure actually has less to do with that chemical reaction and more to do with the brain. And, you know, the muscle doesn't decide whether to move. It, it all depends on a signal from the brain and not just the signal that comes from the brain, but how that signal is transmitted down the spinal cord and eventually to the muscle. This connection between brain and muscle is key. Lifting weights, running long distances, jumping as high as you can, these all require different signals from the brain to different muscles in the body. Working out is like teaching the brain which signal to send and how to send it. So when, 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 it, when I say, I'm tired, I can't lift this weight anymore, there's a lot of places along that uh, train of events that, that could be responsible for my, my fatigue or my inability to lift it. It could be that the brain is sending a weaker signal. It could be that the signal is being lost or blocked or diluted on the route from the brain to the muscle. Or it could be that the muscle is getting the signal, but it just can no longer, the muscle fibers are no longer able to contract in the way that they were when I was, they, they could when I was fresh. The scientists who study this stuff have two categories for fatigue. 
Central fatigue means the signals coming from the brain are getting diluted along the central nervous system. Peripheral fatigue means that the muscles themselves aren't responding very well to those signals from the brain that are making it through. And and I should jump to the, the punchline, which is it's almost impossible to distinguish one from the other. It's not like there's this clear, neat line between, oh, that was the brain and that was the muscles, because it turns out that the signals from your brain their ability to travel to your muscles are affected by what's going on in your muscles because there's all sorts of nerve signals passing back back and forth between your muscles and your brain. So if you're really tired, if your muscles are damaged, they're sending signals back up through your central nervous system, which help block signals from the brain saying, don't send me any more messages to contract. I don't want to contract anymore. So the sensation we know is feeling tired is really our brain's inability to tell our muscles what to do. And that's partly because our muscles have started blocking signals from the brain, essentially throwing static on the line to keep from receiving messages they don't want to get. For example, that burning sensation that happens when you exercise. You probably know it as lactic acid, but that's not actually what it is. You don't actually have lactic acid in your muscles, and that lactic acid doesn't actually stop your muscles from contracting. But your muscles do have sensors that detect the metabolic byproducts of hard exercise These byproducts are lactate, which is a molecule related to lactic acid, hydrogen ions, which is also a part of lactic acid, and adenosine triphosphate, or ATP, which is actually part of what the muscle uses as fuel. And on their own, none of those metabolites do anything bad to your muscles. But you have sensors that detect when when levels of these metabolites are rising, and if all three rise at the same time, then that triggers an alarm bell that sends back a signal through these nerve fibers back to your brain, which your brain interprets as severe discomfort. So your muscles are still, at that point, perfectly capable of contracting, but they've detected uh, worrying levels of of these metabolites related to hard exercise. And so they send back this signal that, that, uh, that tries to change your behavior. So it's not that your muscles are failing, it's they're trying to alter your behavior and force you to slow down. Curled up on the floor of the gym in Colorado, John's muscles were very much trying to change his behavior. But he wasn't up against any physical limits yet. 10,000 pull-ups is not an impossible number. We know this because a month before Robbie shadowed John's second attempt at the record, Andrew Shapiro did 10,000 pull-ups. 10,020, actually. So that he'd still be above 10,000, even if the Guinness Book of World Records determined that some of them hadn't counted. The record hadn't yet been verified when we followed John, but unofficially, John's old record was old news. There was a little portion of me that always thought my first attempt was a partial failure, and that was just my obsessive like tendency to like think of trying to push myself and push my limits, because I didn't use a six-hour portion of the 24 hours I had. Like, I thought like I could have broken 10,000 if I used that last six hours. Andrew had started training again in late 2017 and found that in the year off, he'd actually lost all of his strength. He was in worse pull-up shape than when he started the first time around. Did you feel um, pressure to, to do this for some reason? The only pressure I felt was like self, self-inflicted self pressure, I guess. Like my parents tried to talk me out of training so many times because I saw what it did to me last time. They didn't want to see me get injured or anything. They just like, my mom especially, she did not want me to do it again. (laughs) 
The second time, his training regimen was largely the same. He worked out at night and slowly increased the number of pull-ups. But this time, he increased the pace to 12 a minute, so two sets of six every minute. And he took rest days during the training cycle, which helped a lot. By August, he was doing five and a half to six hours of 12 pull-ups a minute. That's 4,320 pull-ups, a couple days a week. So in these training sessions, you're approaching like a couple of the previous world records. Yeah, I broke my six hour record a lot of times in training. Wow. And like, cause I, when I hit five hours, the record was broken with a 12 minute. Wow. On August 18th, 2018, he went for it again. And this time he was in a gym, not a tent with fans blowing on him and music playing and air conditioning. And it's worth noting that Andrew's nutrition plan is totally different from John's. He just eats a big plate of pasta a few hours before the event, and then drinks water when he's thirsty, has a snack when he's hungry, some caffeine when he's sleepy. Still, the first 7,000 pull-ups were no problem. But he wasn't going for 7,000. He wanted 10. So, so I mean, it was it's sort of an arbitrary goal, right? The 10,000? Like, what kept you going... Uh, from when did it start to hurt? Around eight thousand, I started noticing it like a lot. People said I still look comfortable and that I still look fresh around like seven thousand up until eight thousand. But after that, like it just got exponentially harder, and like the pain was awful. Like uh, it, like the mental side of it, I'd never experienced that. Like just like wanting to give up, I've never had that before. Like. Yeah, it was it was wild. I, like I would have accepted death at that point. <laughs> it it was painful everywhere. I was like, oh, yikes. <laughs> um, what what kept you going then? I mean, other than like the the idea that you want ten thousand, what kept you going to like through the attempt? I guess just looking back at the past ten months of my life, just like. I'd put so much into it. I'd sacrifice so much. Like, like during my whole freshman year, I had a girlfriend, and basically, like, I'd say, like, one of the main issues in our relationship, like, we're not together now anymore. But uh, I essentially, like, I put this ahead of her. Yeah, it was just, I sacrificed a lot for it, and I figured if I didn't do this to the full, like, extent that I could, then I would regret it a lot. So. Was it hard to explain to people why you're doing it? Like if they asked or if your girlfriend was like, oh, you're gonna do five hours of pull-ups instead of spend time with me? What um, did you say to her? It, no one understood it. It was such a, like it was almost like a pride thing, but like not like against anyone else, like against myself kind of. Like I just wanna beat my own, like, like do the best that I could do. And like, cause I didn't do that the first time. And like my mom didn't understand that. She said, you already did it once. Why do you need to do it again? Same with my girlfriend. She said, you already did it once. You, you have a world record. You, ha you had a world record. Like, why do you need to do this? Like, come study or spend time with me. And I would, I would just say like, like you don't get it <laughs> to whoever asked me that. And like, I'd try to explain it sometimes, but like, it's not something like, like that sort of drive. Like some people have it, some people don't. All right, so you, you just stepped out for a minute. What's what's going on? We've entered stage four, which is survival mode. And uh, 
Uh, still doing okay. I'm just I'm just feeling like complete crap right now. Back in the gym, John has slowed to a crawl. Ten thousand is no longer an option. His back is locked up and on fire. Worse, however, is the nausea. Room spinning, bucket seeking, motivation killing nausea. I think I just saw you uh, swear under your breath. Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, I'm, I'm running out. So this is, I'm, I'm going to, I'm getting over this number. I, I don't care what I have to do over the next couple hours. I'm going to get there, but that might be the end of my day. Once I get over 7,600, it'll just be a, a personal best at that point. And uh, I mean, it'll still be a record, but I'll, uh, I'm going to take what I can get right now. It'll be the one way I can get out of this without letting anybody down, right? I don't think you're letting anybody down, no matter what. But is it is it nausea or the the back muscles? It's everything. I'm I'm like miserable right now. My back is in really bad pain, and uh, yeah, I can't seem to calm my stomach down. So it's just survival mode, like I said before. And so I just gotta just gotta keep moving. At 6,800 pull-ups, John drops off the bar and limps out of the room. He tries to throw up, but can't. This this is bad. I mean, I've I've run races, you know, thrown up and kept running. I, I can't seem to shake this one, and I'm I'm just like wasted. It shut me down. I want to get moving. I got what do I got? Eight hundred and fifty to go. <laughs> that sucks. Oh. He lies down on a climbing mat, and while his friends massage him and offer some encouragement, he passes out cold. I'll admit, I was fairly convinced at this point that the event was over, that John had pushed himself past his breaking point and wouldn't be getting off that mat for a long time. But then something pretty amazing happened. After about 30 minutes, he struggled to his feet and hobbled to the shower. I remember leaving the locker room still feeling sick, still feeling like I didn't know what I was going to do. And at that point, my back was still, if you remember, just locked. I mean, I, I, it, everything hurt. And, uh, but when I walked out of the locker room, you can clearly see the party going on, my pull-up bar just kind of in the middle of the whole event. And the place was loud. And I, in that 100 feet from the locker room to the, the entryway to the, you know, to the gym, I remember thinking, no, we got this. This is this is time and, and then everything in those few minutes just shifted. And I remember walking from that doorway to my pull-up bar in a direct line and I grabbed my gloves, I put them on, and I just started cranking them out again because something from the locker room to that to the to the bar said, no, it's time to get the job done. And uh, I thought that was the bet the greatest moment of the night. John plowed through his final 800 pull-ups like it was the first hour of his attempt. Five every 28, no breaks. He was on fire. Until he broke his own record, 7,601. It's fucking awesome! And that was it. After that record-breaking pull-up, John was done. Over the next few hours, he managed 69 more. 
often just one or two at a time. Yeah, and at that point, it wasn't even mental anymore. My, my body shut down, and uh, people really wanted me to get one more, so it would have been an even number, and it took me three attempts to make that final pull. So John collapsed, and then, like the hero in a sports film, got back up and broke his own record. Once he did, he was completely done. So what happened? Why could John just decide to keep going? Well, remember those signals cruising between brain and body? And how, at a certain point, our muscles will start throwing static on the line? Well, your brain has to shout over the static. And the more motivated you are, the louder the signal from your brain. So pushing the limits of endurance becomes a kind of negotiation between mind and muscle. The muscles are trying to block out the brain. But if the brain has a very good reason to keep going, they will. So hitting a number, or reaching a goal, becomes a kind of bargaining chip. If you get me just a little bit farther, the brain says, we'll stop. It's like, okay, and now you need to do a pull-up. That's one thing, but if it's like, and now you need to get ready to just do an open-ended number of pull-ups over, you know, every 10 seconds over the next several hours, it's just a totally different task, and it, and it affects your ability to do even the first pull-up, to, to know that there's going to be another one after that, and another one after that, and another one after that. And so there's no finish line to be looking towards, and so you start to create artificial finish lines, you know, whether it's, you know... The, the 5,000 mark or, you know, a round number or previous record. That, that was the crazy thing that with John that I saw. I mean, he, once he came back, he was like, okay, you know what? I don't care. I'm beating my old record, even if it's just by one pull-up. And he just flew. Like the, the last whatever thousand or something that it was, like it, it was like it was his first set. But then the, 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 the pull-up after his record-breaking pull-up, like, it, it was just a very literal wall. I mean, I think in that moment, you have the ultimate encapsulation of w what it means to be limited, not by your brain or by your muscles, but by yourself, by your brain and muscles together. That's the, that's the nature of limits, is, is that it's those two things coming together. And it wasn't just his brain or just his muscles that, that, that put up that wall. It's you know his his human self and the 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 whole package and what he'd been through over the previous whatever many hours it had been john's final number was 7670 a personal record a moral victory but 2350 short of the number andrew shapiro hit a month before but then when i talked to him i asked andrew if he'd heard anything back from guinness so where, where do things stand right now with your 10,000 record? So this is something I actually have not told anyone except for really like my family. Guinness declined my record this time for the 10,000. Uh, they said my technique was not 100% what they wanted. You hear a lot about the sacrifices athletes make, but we usually think about it in the context of comfort and luxuries. Lazy Sundays and beers with friends. Andrew gave up all that. But then pull-ups asked for more. And he gave it that too. And it had all been for nothing. For what it's worth, Andrew says his technique never changed. And that he compared his pull-ups to John Orth's. And they're the exact same. 
but there's nothing you can do. Guinness's decisions are final. After I found out, I felt bad. Like I look back on all the relationships and things I kind of sacrificed and like I apologize. Like, like and I really thought like, is doing pull-ups for a year out of my life really worth it? Like, wh- why? Because like, I talked to like my ex-girlfriend and I said like, I'm really sorry I put that ahead of you last year. Like that was, that was selfish of me. I don't think like looking back on it, like I shouldn't have done that. So what'd she say? She said, like, I mean, she was trying to comfort me. Like, she said it wasn't my fault, obviously, because, like, I don't know. It, it, it was a it was confusing, like, two-week period where I was, like, feeling down about the whole situation. But been, I mean, I just have a better outlook on it now, I think. Both John and Andrew started working on the pull-up record at basically the same time. Hit the same numbers. And now... They both say they're done with the record. Do you think you'll do this again? I'm not sure. I'm feeling like I probably won't. Uh, Staging a 24-hour event, training for a 24-hour event is grueling. It takes up a big chunk of your life. You know, you're training 20 or 30 hours a week, and um, it's hard on your family. It's hard on your friends when they're, you know, pulling for you the whole time. And so right now, it's not in the cards, um... I want to train for a few other things. I've also thought about putting the word out, seeing if anyone else wants to train for this, and I'll help them. I have the experience now. I, I know what to do. I know how to get somebody else across this line, and I think it would be great to see if somebody would take me up on that. Yeah. Uh, right now, no takers. <laughs> so, it, But it'll be interesting to see if we can find one. In the end, the real limit on the 24-hour pull-up record might simply be time. We've now not pushed it to the human limit. We know that. Uh, but what we know is that we've moved it out of the realm of, you know, casual. Anyone who wants this now has to dedicate a portion of their life to it, to do it. Um, anyone who could walk into this and break 7,000 pull-ups on a, on a whim, you know, within with three to five months of training is, is Superman. Um this is going to be the type of thing now that someone has to dedicate 20 to 30 hours a week for the better part of a year to even have a shot at. So if this pull-up record stands, it'll probably stand because people with the kind of time, strength, and let's be honest, money to break it, aren't willing to sacrifice the rest of their lives. The real limit of the pull-up record, and human endurance itself, may simply be our desire to do other things. To be fully human. How many pull-ups do you think it's possible for a person to do any like the, a human being in a day yeah 24 hours it's always gonna keep expanding i think like this time i hit 10,000 and i still didn't use five hours of the time like i guarantee there are people out there who could break this record if they really put their mind to it it's just no one wants to spend that amount of time if someone is crazy slash stupid enough to do that like <laughs> And for whatever reason they want to, I think it is possible. But yeah, that's up to them.
This episode was written and produced by Robbie Carver and me, Peter Frickwright, with music by Robbie. It's based on the book Endure, The Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance by Alex Hutchinson. He doesn't talk about pull-ups, but he does have a ton of other stories about lifting cars, ultra running, and other crazy things people do. This episode was brought to you by Clever by Nature, pushing the limits by inventing new ways to make natural materials. Find out more at cleverbynature.com. Thanks to Laura Krantz, Matt Fiddler, and Paul Caroli for recording help. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX. We'll be back next week.